as we kicked this off last Sunday, we, we, we laid a foundation by looking in the book of Genesis at what the Bible teaches about God being the creator of the universe, and as creator, he is the ultimate authority. And one of the, the key questions you have to answer is, who's the authority in your life for what you believe and how you live? Well, if God is your God, Jesus is your Savior, he's Lord, he's creator, he is that ultimate authority. And so we look at what he teaches in Genesis about creation and his design for life. And he makes it very clear what his design for human sexuality is. It's a heterosexual relationship within the confines of marriage. And it's not simply that homosexual behavior is sinful. It's that any sexual activity outside that which is prescribed by God in the book of Genesis, a heterosexual relationship within the boundaries, the covenant of marriage, any sex outside of that is sinful. And so last Sunday we talked about the fact that adultery, sex before marriage, incest, pornography, any form of sexual behavior outside heterosexual relationship within the boundaries of covenant marriage is sinful. So it's not just homosexuality, it's all of those things. Now here's what we're going to do the next two Sundays. We're going to look at passages in, in the Bible that talk about homosexuality and try to understand them. But we're also going to look at what those who say the Bible does not call homosexuality a sin. There are more liberal denominations, some Christians who say, well, the Bible do, does not really co condemn homosexuality, and particularly the kind of relationships we talk about today, two people, the same sex, who are committed to one another in a loving relationship. The Bible doesn't condemn that, they say. So when we look at these passages that talk about homosexual behavior, we're going to take some time to understand what those who think like that say about those passages. How do they deal with it? So what does the Bible say? How do those who disagree with us, those who say, hey, there's nothing wrong with it, how do they handle those passages? What do they say about those Bible verses? And then we're going to answer some questions along the way that are on all of our minds as well. So as we get started today, I want you to open your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 19. This morning we're going to look at two passages in the Old Testament. Next Sunday we'll look at two passages in the New Testament. Okay, And I want to do some teaching. So we're just going to walk through this very methodically, understanding the passage, understanding what those who believe there's nothing wrong with homosexuality say about these Bible verses, and, and just try to understand it as best we can. So I hope you'll take some notes. We're going to study. Just pretend you're in a, you know, a small group Bible study with me, and we're just working our way through these passages and trying to understand these issues as best we can. Now, Genesis 19 is a story that's familiar to us, to most people in the world, Sodom and Gomorrah, and chapter 19 focuses on Sodom. This takes place during the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, you know, Isaac, so it's early in Israel's history. And it's the first passage in the Bible that deals with the issue of homosexuality. Now, the background for what happens in chapter 19 is found in chapter 18. In chapter 18, Abraham and his wife Sarah are older and they are visited by three men. They have the appearance of men. But two of them are angels and one of them is Jesus in a pre-incarnate appearance to Abraham. Jesus in the Old Testament from time to time, God, Jesus, would appear incarnate, would appear in flesh to someone even before he was born at Bethlehem. This is one of those occasions. And uh, so these three men approach Jesus approached Abraham rather and, and we know it's the Lord because 
it, it tells us in chapter 19, two of them were angels, but, but in, in chapter 18, the one that Abraham speaks with is called Lord. Now, in your English Bibles, the word Lord in chapter 18, is many of them, is, it's all spelled in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Why is that? Because this is a place where the sacred name of God, Yahweh, was used in the Hebrew Bible. Moses at the burning bush, who are you? I am, I am, Yahweh. That sacred name is used here. And so a devout Jew, when reading the Bible, when speaking, when they came to God's sacred name, you're like, you know, my name's not sacred, it's just Steve. Your name's whatever it is. But God had a name, Yahweh. When they would come to that, they felt that name was so sacred they would not even pronounce it. And they would always substitute the word Lord. And so in your English Bible, when you see it all in capital letters, L-O-R-D, and not every English translation does that, but most of the modern ones do, um, it's a way of signifying to you that this is a place for God's sacred name, Yahweh. And that's what we have here in Genesis 18. So these three men come to Abraham. One of them is the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ. Two of them are angels. And we're told in chapter 18 they are on their way to Sodom, because the sin of Sodom is so, 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 so bad, it's so much that it's already ascended to God. They are on their way to Sodom to judge it and to destroy the city. And so Abraham has a conversation with them with the Lord. And at the end of that conversation, at chapter 18, verse 33, the Lord vanishes. He leaves Abraham. And the two angels in chapter 19, verse 1, continue their journey to Sodom. So that's where I want to pick the story up, chapter 19, verse 1. Let's read together. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And you remember Lot is Abraham's nephew and he had chosen to settle there, etc. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Somehow, we don't, we don't know how, but somehow Lot knew they were more than just men. He recognized there was something unique about these. They were angels. And he says to them in, 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 in verse 2, Now behold, my lords, and in the English it's small letters, small L, small or, because it's just a sign of respect. He's not referring to them as God, as Yahweh, as capital Lord. He said, and now, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. We're going to stay out in the city square. Verse 3, he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Verse 4, but before they lay down, before they went to bed, the men of the city the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them, referring to sexual relations. Now the King James translates it that we may know them. I'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 6, But Lot went out to them at the doorway, and he shut the door behind him, and he said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters. And when you read this, you're not going to think very much of Lot as a father, okay? I have two daughters who have not had relations with men or the King James have not known men. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do not, 
Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, I told you, you're not, not going to have a very high opinion of Lot as a dad after that, are you? <laughs> Leave these guys alone. You can have my girls instead. Yeah, uh, that's another sermon. Verse 9. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Remember, Lot was not from Sodom. He had moved there, just like some of you have moved here, like Monisa and I moved here 27 years ago. We're not natives to Rock Hill. We are transplants, if you will. Lot was a transplant to Sodom. And so here they say, this guy who's not really one of us, he's judging us. And you know, anytime you as a member of the family of God, someone who's in the kingdom of God, speaks truth in this culture, in this world that is not part of God's kingdom. That's what they'll say. Who are you to judge us? You ever heard anything like that? It's not new. It's always been that way. He continues in verse 9. Now, we will treat you worse than them. If you don't bring them out, we're going to do something worse to you than we're going to do to them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men, verse 10, the angels, the two angels on the inside, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. In verse 11, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness. The story continues the following morning after they left Sodom, God sent fire from heaven and destroyed the city and everyone in it. So that's the story. Historically, Throughout the centuries, Judaism, Christianity have both said one of the sins and the great sin of this city was homosexuality, and it's the reason for which they were judged. Now, what about the gay community, and in particular, the religious gay community, who say the Bible does not condemn homosexuality, it's okay. How do they deal with Genesis 19? How do they handle this story? There's basically two approaches. Now, I have spent a lot of time reading, doing research. I've got a stack of research papers that thick. I've got books. I've read what they write. Because when you're going to do serious study, you need to understand what those who disagree with you, what those who disagree with the Bible actually say, so you can be engaged with an intelligent conversation with them. So when, when I share this with you, I'm sharing with you what they say. Now, the first approach is not very effective, and it's the one that was used at the beginning of the movement to say, no, the Bible does not say homosexuality is a sin. But I want you to be aware of it because you will still see it from time to time. And, and it's, it's this, that the real sin in Genesis 19 was not homosexual behavior. The real sin was the lack of hospitality. I'll explain that in a minute. Or the second one and the more prominent approach is to say the, the real sin was not the nature of the sex. It was not the fact that it was homosexual in nature. The real sin was the violence of it, that they were wanting to, to rape these men. That's the reason God judged the city. So I want to talk about those two things. The first is that, that it, their sin was a lack of hospitality. Now, you have to understand, in the Old Testament, the Bible very clearly teaches that the Jewish people were to treat strangers with incredible kindness. 
They were to be generous with them. They were to be good to them. There was an expectation that you helped strangers. And so the argument goes that Lot would not introduce his friends to the people of Sodom. So he was being inhospitable. And then as that went on, the people of Sodom became more angry and became more violent, and they weren't very hospitable. And, and that thinking developed early on because of the King James, King James translation of the Bible that translates this as no, to know. You know, in, here when in verse, uh, verse uh, 4, when, when it says the men of the city surrendered the house and uh, they called out to Lot in verse 5, uh, were the men that came to you tonight, bring them out that we may have relations with them. The King James translates that we may know them. And so they said, well, it's talking about relationships, talking to people, getting to know one another, being hospitable. The problem is, even though that Hebrew word most of the time means to know, as you and I, I, I want to know somebody, there are, there are times, particularly in the book of Genesis, where it is a, figure, a, a figurative speech or a euphemism, if you will, for sexual relations. For instance, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the King James says that Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Modern translations say Adam had relations with Eve because that's the idea. No, there's a euphemism for sexual relationships. Here is the same thing because it's two verses later after they said, we want to know these men. We want to have relations with these. Two verses later, Lot says, no, 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 no. Here, I'll give you my two virgin daughters who have never known men, who have never had sexual relations with the men. Now, again, a bad dad. You don't do that, okay? But that also explains what he understood they meant by their request and understands what the word here in the text actually means. So we're not talking about hospitality. We're talking about sexual activity very clearly. So the idea that the sin was a lack of hospitality does not stand up to the scrutiny of accurate and honest Bible study. But what about the second reasoning? Gang rape. Gang rape. They were going to, they were going to do violence. Let's talk about that one because that's the one you'll see more often. Um, and they say it's not the fact that it was just homosexual sex. That, that, nothing wrong with that. But it wasn't consensual. It was going to be rape. Well, first, the text does not say they wanted to rape them. That's an inference that some people draw. When he says, hey, where are these guys? Why don't you bring them out so we can have relations with them? That could just as easily be taken to mean, hey, we're going to have a party. We want you all to come. Because it was not unusual in ancient civilizations to have sexual orgies, to have parties that were basically sexual orgies that had heterosexual sex and homosexual sex as part of it. So the text could just as easily be talking about that. But if you really want to understand what they, what, what's really going on here, there's a verse in the New Testament that makes it pretty clear. The book of Jude, the book before, the, before Revelation, it's only one chapter, but verse 7 of that book says this. And I want you to look at it here on the screen. He, he's using Sodom and Gomorrah to illustrate the sin of the group that he's talk, that Jude is talking to in the New Testament era. And what he says is, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, now notice this, since they in the same way as these, the people Jude is writing to, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, the word there, 
gross immorality. You, you remember last Sunday I said there are different words in the Bible for sexual sins, and one of the more common ones in the Greek New Testament is the word pornea, or various uh, versions, forms of that word, verbs, nouns, adjectives, pornea. And, and while there's a specific word in the Greek New Testament for adultery, pornea is a very broad word that is inclusive of every form of sexual sin. Going back to Genesis, remember, any sin outside of a heterosexual relationship within marriage is pornea, incest, adultery, um, sex out before marriage, por- uh, por- pornography. All of that is pornea. We get our word pornography from this Greek word pornea. Now, that's the, that's, there's a version of that word pornea that is used in Jude 7. Now, it says gross. My Bible says gross immorality, gross pornea, because there's a prefix on the word in the Greek text that that carries with it the idea of abundance. Of it's, it's the picture of their lust for sex was just overpowering. And, and there were no restraints. It was, it was just all out there. So it's reminiscent of what Genesis 18 said when, when the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Abraham and said Sodom's sin in chapter 18 of Genesis is so gross, so big, that it's, it's come all the way up to me and I'm coming down here to deal with it. Now, what about the strange flesh? The Greek word for strange is the word for different of a different kind. And it's going back to the creation order, thinking that what's natural, God created heterosexual relationships, heterosexual sex within the confines of marriage. When you go away from that kind, a strange kind, what does not seem natural, what does not seem normal. And so Jude is saying that they are a very promiscuous city all forms of sexual deviation and sexual sins. And part of that is homosexuality, the strange flesh, what's not natural, homosexuality. And so Jude is saying their sin was not only that they wanted to, and, and, and we, we don't know, did, did they want to rape these guys? We don't know. But let's just say even if they did, what Jude is saying is the sin was not that, even though that would be a sin, the sin was the homosexual nature of what they were wanting to do with these visitors. Now, one more point. God did not destroy Sodom. Now listen to me very carefully. Don't jump the gun. God did not destroy Sodom because of what happened in chapter 19 of Genesis. Now listen to me. God did not destroy Sodom because in chapter 19 they wanted to do this with those two guests in Lot's house, the two angels. That's not the reason. In chapter 18, verse 20, the chapter before, God had already decided to judge them. Before anything in chapter 19 happened. Are you tracking with me? Give me a nod. Are you following with me? So in chapter 18, verse 20, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abraham, he's speaking to Abraham, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. And not everything Abraham and the Lord said to one another is recorded here. You, you understand that not the whole conversation is written down. You got that, right? But God must have said some other things to Abraham because Abraham replied to the Lord in verse 23. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham understood that God was going to judge Sodom and that he was going to destroy the place before we ever get to chapter 19. 
And so then Abraham begins this conversation with God. Lord, if you find this many righteous people, will you spare the city? And God says, yes. And then Abraham says, but Lord, if you find this many, a smaller number, will you spare the city? And God says, yes. And you get down to the end of chapter 18. And Abraham said at the, in verse 32, Lord, if you find just 10 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare it? And God says, yes, I will. But he didn't, he didn't even find 10 righteous people in Sodom. And so it was destroyed. The sin, listen, the sin that led to the destruction of Sodom took, was committed before chapter 19 ever happened. And Jude says it was their sexual immorality and strange flesh, the homosexuality. Chapter 19 is not the reason Sodom was judged. It's not the reason Sodom was destroyed. Chapter 19 is an illustration of their sin. An illustration of their attitude. An illustration of their promiscuity. An illustration of why God in chapter 18 said their sin was so great that their cry, the cry of it had already come up to me. Chapter 19 illustrates it. It's not the reason, it's the illustration. It already been happening. And so the argument that the pro-gay community makes to say the Bible does not consider homosexual behavior a sin when it comes to this, this, this chapter, this story, when they say it's all about rape, not about homosexual, it doesn't hold water because what that event of them surrounding the house and wanting to do whatever they wanted to do with those two angels had nothing to do with why Sodom was destroyed in the first place. And so the whole argument they make is mute and irrelevant. And now we're left with the teaching of Scripture from the book of Jude and from Genesis that Sodom was judged because of its sexual immorality and part of that was homosexuality. All right, one more New Testament passage, Old Testament passage rather. Turn to Leviticus, the book of Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. Now, the story we just read in Genesis is during the time of Abraham, the patriarchs. The story, uh, the verses in Leviticus are during the time of Moses. Years later, Moses has led the people of, of Israel to freedom from Egypt. And now he's received the Ten Commandments from God to give to the people. And he's giving them the law, etc. And these are two of the verses that are often quoted about homosexuality and some people call them the clobber verses, the verses that people use to clobber, you know, homosexuals over the head with, etc. Um, so look at what he says in chapter 18, verse 22 of Leviticus. He said, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Now look at chapter 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman... Both of them have committed a detestable act. Now, the Hebrew word translated detestable act in chapter 20 is the same Hebrew word translated abomination in chapter 18. So talking about the same, the same thing. Now, these verses seem pretty clear. So how do those who believe homosexuality is not a sin, that the Bible doesn't, doesn't say it's a sin, how do they deal with these two verses? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, Again, there's basically two approaches. Now, the, the second one will be easier for you to understand than the first one. 
The first one is they say that the, the issue is not homosexual relationships, homosexual sex, especially in a committed relationship, but it's homosexual behavior that is part of ancient pagan idol worship. That's the only thing that's condemned here. The second, the second approach is to say, well, the Old Testament law does not apply to us as Christians, so we, it, it doesn't matter. We don't follow it because we don't follow the Old Testament law. I want to talk about both of those. The first part, when, when they talk about uh, it, this is only referring to homosexual behavior during worship, during during the idol worship of, say, pagans in ancient times and so on, so it's not relevant to us today. In, in many ancient religions, you have what the Bible calls, and in theology and in history we call sacred prostitutes. These were men and women who were stationed at the places of worship at temples and so on, and part of the worship was sex. And it could be heterosexual sex or homosexual sex. It could be male-on-male, female-on-female, male-on-female. All of that happened in the ancient world as an act of worship. The book of Kings and other places in the Bible deals with that issue. And in fact, there's a specific Hebrew word in the Old Testament for the male sacred prostitutes and a specific Hebrew word in the Old Testament for the female sacred prostitutes. Those words are used in Kings. Those words are not used here. Now, why do some argue that um, the homosexual behavior here is not homosexual behavior in general, especially as we know today, but it's limited to those who practice it in those pagan rites, that cultic worship, worshiping idols and so on? Why why do they say that? Why, Why do they say this is not a moral law? It's just a cultic law, if you will. Well, a couple of things. Look at verse 21. He says, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech. Another thing that some in ancient religions did, in addition to homosexual you know, activity at, at the shrines, uh, some of them would sacrifice their children to idols. You see that in movies sometimes, don't you? There are still some places in Africa where that, unfortunately, happens. It's not on a big scale anymore, but it does still happen even today. And so he talks about that in verse 21. They say, ah, you see, he's talking in these pas- this passage, this, this book of Leviticus about this cultic worship, about the way pagans worshiped and, and that the people of Israel are to worship differently. And so that's all this is talking about. But it ignores the reality that sacrificing your child is more than an issue of worship. Sacrificing your child is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And therefore, it is a moral issue. It ignores the fact that other moral issues are addressed in this chapter. It's not all about worship. Verse 20 talks about adultery. Verse 6 and following talk about incest. In verse 6, he says, None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. Remember to know the ancient, not only the Bible and ancient Hebrew, but many ancient languages and ancient religions used euphemisms, these, these, these word pictures, if you will, figurative speech for sex, to know. Or here in verse 6, uh, to uncover nakedness. Other places to go into, like, you know, you go into the tent. 
there's, there's different phrases. And so he's, he's talking about incest in verse 6. You're not to uncover the nakedness to have, to have sex with, a, with another relative. Verse, uh, verse 7, don't uncover the nakedness of your father or your mother. Uh, verse 8, uh, your father's wife, stepmom, which was a sin committed in 1 Corinthians 5. We looked at last Sunday. Um, verse 9, don't uncover the nakedness of your sister. Verse 10, don't uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or your your daughter's daughter, your grandchildren. Verse 12, don't uh, uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, your aunt, your uncle, male homosexuality, female homosexuality, incest, whatever. Those are all moral issues. They're they're not part of the way ancients worshipped. He's talking about moral issues here. Now, Another thing you'll sometimes read in the gay literature is that, the, that every time the word abomination, as, as in verse 22, or in chapter 20, a detestable thing, every time that word is used, they say it's, all, it's only used, you'll hear this, you'll read this, it's only used when the Bible is talking about these ancient pagan worship practices that were immoral. That's the only time you'll see the word. The problem is that is absolutely false. It is so untrue. If you look on the screen at just one example, I can, I can show you many examples, but just one example, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Here, look, look at verse 16 for a minute. God says, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Now, the word translated abomination is the same Hebrew word that is translated as abomination or detestable thing in chapter 18 and chapter 20 of Leviticus. Let's go to the next verses. Here's what God hates. Here's what God calls abomination, a detestable thing in Proverbs. Haughty eyes, pride and arrogance, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, murder, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, a liar, and one who spreads strife among brothers. By the way, a lot of churches need to read that last part. So when you read in the literature of those who say homosexuality is not a sin in the Bible, that, that abomination, these words, only refers to these worship issues, uh-uh, that's just one example of many I can show you. It's, it's, it's dealing with moral issues, not, not cultic worship issues. So that argument doesn't stand the scrutiny of, of, of Scripture. The second argument is that the Old Testament law does not apply to us as Christians. And you'll hear people say things like, well, you know, we pick and choose. We don't obey all the law. Well, you know, you know, we, we don't keep all those dietary laws, all those food laws in the Old Testament that God gave the Jewish people. I mean, how many of you all eat fish? How many of you eat pork? You know, how, you know, how many of you like your steak raw? Violating food laws of the Old Testament. We don't keep all the laws of the Old Testament, do we? And so the argument goes, well, we don't keep those, so why should you apply this one if you don't apply all these others? So let's, let's talk about that a second. When you think about the Old Testament law, you need to understand that it, that it has three parts to it. There's what we call the ceremonial law, civil laws, and moral laws. Ceremonial laws were those that related to worship. So 
if a Jew was going to go to the temple or to the or uh, and, and and make a sacrifice, he had to prepare himself the right way. There's there's descriptions in the Old Testament of how they were to wash themselves and prepare their bodies. That if they committed certain sins, there was these rituals, these ceremonies they went through to be purified before they could go to the temple, before they could make a sacrifice. It's what Jesus is talking about in the book, in, in the Gospels, when he said, It's not what goes into the man that defiles him, but what comes out. Because Jesus is saying that because he fulfills the law, the ceremonial laws do not apply to us anymore. Because what you eat, what you drink, these rituals for, you know, Food laws and all that stuff, none of that applies to us. Jesus said that. that. That's not what defiles someone. It's what comes out. It's what's on the inside of you that issues itself in how you live. So the ceremonial laws do not apply to us. The civil laws. The civil laws in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament deal with the relationship between God and Israel as a nation. Governance issues. Well, we're Christians. We're, we're, we're not Jews. We're Christians. This is the church. It's not the nation of Israel. So the civil laws that relate to Israel as a nation and their governance don't apply to us. But what about the moral laws? The moral laws are an expansion, an explanation, if you will, of how we apply the Ten Commandments. For instance, one of the Ten Commandments is do not commit adultery. The Ten Commandments don't say anything about incest, but the moral law in the Old Testament does to help us understand how you flesh out these moral principles that God gives us to live by. Now, Jesus very clearly said the ceremonial laws don't apply to us, but when it comes to the moral laws, last Sunday we saw that Jesus rather than diminishing the moral laws, elevated them and made them stronger. You remember last Sunday we looked at it in the Gospels? Jesus said, you have heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks on a woman with lust, he's already what? Committed adultery with her in his heart. So rather than saying, the moral laws do not apply the way he had said the, the, the ceremonial laws don't apply. Jesus took the moral laws and he strengthened them. And the entire witness of the New Testament is that the moral laws do still apply. And so when you hear someone say, well, we don't follow the laws of the Old Testament, therefore that doesn't apply to us, that is very weak, shallow Bible study. Because the moral laws of God's Word do still apply. Now, let me, let me just uh, wrap this up by making this really, really clear. All right, are you in Leviticus? We're going to start in chapter 18 and go through chapter 20 real quick. Not every verse, don't worry. It's going to be like a machine gun, pow, 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 okay? Now, let's look at some of these moral laws. Chapter 18, starting at verse 6, we looked at it a moment ago, incest with these various relatives, moral law. Verse 20, you shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife, adultery, moral law. Verse 22, not lie with a male, etc., like you would a female, homosexuality, moral law. Now go to chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 3, 
Every one of you shall reverence his mother and father. Have respect for, honor your parents. Moral law. Look at verse, verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 19. He said, Now when you reap the harvest of your hand, of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of the harvest. You know what he's saying? He's saying, guys, when your crops come in and you, you gather it, whatever falls on the ground, leave it. That's the gleanings. Whatever falls on the ground, leave it. And when you gather your crops, leave the corners, the four corners of your garden. Why? Because he goes on to say, that was their welfare system. So the poor and the needy, the way they took care of them, the way they made sure they had food was when they gathered their crops, whatever fell on the ground, they left. They left the corners. And by the way, it's a great model for welfare that America could learn something from about you know providing for the needy while also expecting something from them. It's a different sermon for a different day. But that's the biblical model. And so here, generosity, caring for the needy, moral law. Look at verse 11 of chapter 19. You shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another. Stealing and honesty, moral law. Look at verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob from him. Don't steal from your neighbor and don't abuse them. Moral law. Look at verse... uh, Verse 16, don't be a slanderer. Don't don't slander people. Don't lie about people. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge. Moral law. You get the picture? Well, let's go on to chapter 20. Verse 2, look at verse 2. Don't sacrifice your children to these pagan idols. It's not only a worship issue. It's a moral law. It's murder. Look at verse verse um, verse 9. He said, don't curse your parents. Honor, respect your parents. Moral law. Verse 10, don't commit adultery. Moral law. Verses 11 and 12, incest. Moral law. Verse 22, a man lying with a male as with a woman. Moral law. So all through these three chapters where these two verses about homosexuality are found, that the gay community says, no, it's not moral law. It doesn't apply to us today. It's in this, this, this passage where all of, these, all of these are talking about moral laws. So if, if we're going to say those two verses about homosexuality don't apply, then I guess we have to throw out all these verses about incest, about adultery, about lying, about stealing, about generosity, and caring for the needy, and on and on and on. You can't just drop in and cherry pick those two verses and say those don't apply. The, those two moral laws don't apply in the middle of all these verses about moral principles that no one would argue we should reject. And so again... The way they explain these passages is to say the Bible does not consider homosexuality a sin, does not stand up to the scrutiny of thorough and honest Bible study. I've taken a fair amount of time to look at these two passages and to give you a sense of what those who disagree with us, disagree with God's Word about this, say about these passages. Now, why am I being so methodical? Well, part of it is I believe we need to be informed. And we need to be able to have a a conversation with someone that's intelligent. 
We need to be able to have a conversation from an informed position. We, we need to be able to do more than just say, well, the Bible says it's a sin. I don't know why, and that's all I know, but the Bible says it, and I believe it, and that settles it. You need to be able to say more than that when you have conversations with people. Ignorance doesn't mean someone is stupid. It just means we don't know something. We don't need to be ignorant of what the Bible teaches. So we need to study and think through these issues. And here's another reason. With the way our culture is changing, the reality is that an increasing number of younger adults and kids through school, through the media, through everything in this society are coming to believe that it's okay. And an increasing number of Young adults and kids who go to church struggle with this issue because we don't talk about it. And they know the Bible says that, but they don't understand much more than what the Bible says that. And there's all this pressure. And we've got kids who are leaving this week to go to college. They're going to be inundated. You and I need to know more than simply what the Bible says this to help them. And they need to know more. And when they read on the internet or in a book or a magazine these arguments that say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't mean what you always said it means, they need to understand the fallacy of those statements and those articles and those books. And if you've, you've never heard anything about it, and, and all you read is what's false, you can be easily persuaded. And this is not a day and time when you and I can't afford to be ignorant. To be uninformed. So we're going to continue to take our time. Now, I planned for this to be a three-week sermon series. I'm just going to be honest with you. I can't do it in three weeks. I wish I could, but I can't. I think I can in four. We'll see. I think so. But getting it done the right way is more important. And so we're going to stick with it for at least two more weeks. And I want to close with two verses on the screen, and I'm done. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Accurately handling the word of truth. Brothers and sisters, we cannot do that if we're not willing to study. You're not going to be able to handle the word of truth accurately and responsibly and effectively in this culture if you don't study. And you are responsible for your learning. You are responsible for your study. You are responsible for being diligent to do that so that you can stand before God as a workman, as a servant of Jesus Christ, not ashamed because you did your job. You did it the right way. That's a verse to us. And you remember last Sunday I closed with a verse in Corinthians that says we are to hold ourselves accountable to the commitments that we make as Christians, as followers of Jesus. Instead of holding the world, the lost, accountable for a commitment they've never made. That's God's job. He will hold them accountable.
We're to hold ourselves accountable to be what God calls us to be and to the commitments we have said we are making as followers of Jesus. But I do have a verse for our culture, for the lost, for this world. And it's the next one. What are those who call evil good and good evil? Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Remember Corinthians, God will judge them. God will judge the world. That's what he did with something. God will judge the culture. God says, and that's the warning we sound, we don't hold them accountable. God does. But we are accountable for who we are. For those who reject what God says, those who call what is evil, what God says is wrong, those who call that good. And then those who call good, what God says is right, evil. Woe to them. God, God, will, God will take care of that. Now, all kinds of questions on our minds. There was a question submitted on one of our Connect cards last Sunday. A woman in our church member has an adult son who's homosexual. And her question was, what am I supposed to do? Disown him? And the answer is, no, you're supposed to love him. Don't agree with him. You don't have to affirm his lifestyle, but you've got to love him. And you've got to be part of his life and let him be part of your life. You've got to love him. And that's not easy. But you've got to love them just like you would love a son who's an alcoholic. Just like you would love a daughter who's gotten pregnant two or three times outside marriage. Because those are also abominations, are they not? So no, you don't disown them. But neither do you affirm the choices or agree with the lifestyle. You remember Jesus when the woman caught in adultery was thrown at his feet? He said to her two things. Neither do I condemn you. Doesn't mean he was approving what she did. Listen to all of it. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. You don't have to affirm, you don't have to agree with, but you do have to love. Just like you would others in your family. Okay? Okay. Let's stand.